Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. For 48 minutes, we've set an alarm because you have to pick up your kid. I do. Because we got started late today, because why? Because I stopped at a CVS Walgreens near my house and CVS and Walgreens would be very sad that you cannot distinguish which <laughs> it's yeah it's one of those stores i can't remember but after i parked my car i stopped for a moment i paused to send a text and after i sent that text text message i got out of the car closed the door and realized i locked my keys in the car sitting they were i left them sitting on the um Passenger side seat. Okay, so. so I have three comments about that. One is that seems like a big design flaw. Yes. So this is generous of yes. me. Yes. Two is this has definitely happened to me before. Oh, good. Three is I lied, I have four. Three is this is what happens when we multitask all the time yes. and don't practice mindfulness. I'm yes. like, that's a real thing. Like, because we're trying to do nine things at once. Absolutely. Right. That's real. That's real. Um, and then the fourth thing is, when I was a kid, we had this joke that like Superman was so strong, he couldn't lift up a pencil. Like, like you're so strong, you can't. Do- I don't know why, but in my head, this was like a real thing when I was a child. Okay. So when things like that happen, I'm just like, oh, I'm so brilliant that I'm a dummy. <laughs> okay. This is this is counterintuitively like, uh, a sign of your great brilliance. I'm not really connecting mm-hmm. those dots, but okay, I mean just take I'll the take win. It. I take will the take win. It. I will take anyway, it. So what's astonishing you? What's astonishing me? Well, um, as we finished our walk uh, today, um, I started talking about my wife and um, our differences. You know, the person I'm married to is we're we're a lot of like a lot alike in, in terms of personality. But there's one a uh, huge way in which we're very different. And um, I don't think I've ever talked about this in the podcast, but my wife works in the corporate world and she's a 5'3 um, Korean woman, uh, army veteran. And uh, she works with quite a few men and she is quick to have a hard conversation. And at first, you know, in our marriage, I was really threatened by that um, because I it felt unsafe. It felt to me, my, my fear was that she was going to get herself in a, a situation that was too much for her. And so I was always worried that her willingness and her quickness to enter into a hard conversation would just get her in over her head. But the opposite has been true. <laughs> That's my patriarchy warning alert. I and but the opposite has been true. It has it has opened doors for her. And I'm I'm just wired in a different way. My whole um outlook is around survival as a, a black man in America. I think I just need to survive this situation. And so often I'm I'm what you, like when I'm when I enter into a building, a room for the first time, one of the first things I do is I'm looking for the exits. Like it's it's like it's all about safety. Mm-hmm. It's all about um, uh, not causing too much of a commotion, right? And so what we've had to do in our marriages is, is to see each other and to appreciate each other because there there is a time when you, you need to be loud and bold and make everybody around you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and there is a time 
to look for the exits, to be safe, to survive. And so um, my wife has just really helped me to flex that part of my personality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm thinking about that because she she just got back from a business trip and um, she's doing so well in her work primarily because of the way she is wired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking you talk about. I'm sorry, I just put a frozen raspberry in my mouth because I thought you were going to say more. <laughs> so this is I was awkward. like, are, are we talking and eating at the same time? I'm sorry, now? What, what, what's I don't happening? know what's wrong with me. I'm sorry. Um, you were thinking about. Han. And I mean, I think it's really interesting how sometimes I mean, this very sincere desire to want to protect people, <laughs> I mean, is actually underneath the surface wanting to control people. Absolutely. And yes. like just not trusting because them if you with their safety, agency. Then part right. of wanting safety is wanting control. Right. And I mean, there's obviously we all um, should be able to be safe in every situation that we're in. But I think I mean, I think there's just a, um, I think sometimes speaking as a white person, sometimes we are looking for direction of like, what is the right way to show up in the world when you want to be part of the kingdom of God and you want to resist the powers and principalities and not participate with them. And we, we are looking for someone to say definitively, be like this. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, there's a obviously a multiplicity of voices and there's a multiplicity of roles. And so it's not like you necessarily need to be more like Han. I mean, maybe you do, I don't know. But I think also to be able to say, you know, communities need people like Han and people like Yolando who are bearing the truth of who they are and their experience of the world in different ways because they're different. And I think too often, I mean, especially as, as white people, we're just sort of like, okay, just tell me what I need to do so I can check the box and move on instead of doing like the real deep and uncomfortable work of saying, how do I, you know, how do I show up bravely and authentically and often uncomfortably and not just try to like get my, get off the, you know it's not, I'm not responsible <laughs> you're an ally card but really to say like no this is ongoing and so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to engage ongoingly not because you know because I'm not just in it to get my proof that I'm a good person I'm in it because I think the spirit of the Lord is bringing deliverance and I want to be a part of that whether it be external or internal but also recognizing that like the way I walk that out is different from the way you walk that out. Like it's really interesting. Recently, I was doing some court support um, with a leader who I really deeply admire. Um, she makes me very uncomfortable, and I think prophets do right. And so we were we were talking. Um, court support means you just show up and you sit in the gallery um, because it is incontrovertible that the sentences that are handed down to defendants are. Um, mitigated by the presence of people in the gallery and particularly the presence of white people in the gallery. And by that, I mean um, sentences are harsher and more punitive um, for people of color 
if there's no one there to watch and particularly if there are no white people there to watch. So anyway, you go and you show up and I, that's all I do. And I don't know the work the way the people leading the organization do. Um, and there's this, the, a one woman who's a, a leader in the organization who I really deeply admire. I see her as a prophet. She makes me very uncomfortable, but I recognize her voice. Um, and I recognize just the fury and impatience she has with injustice and the suffering of people who, in, in, who are being oppressed and and bearing fruit of that and I'm like oh I'm I'm uncomfortable with that I'm offended by that but also I bet the good women of Israel were offended by Amos calling them fat cows of Bashir so like I'm just like I don't like it but I know this is what I mean there's a reason people kill prophets because they told the truth in a way that deeply offended people and people were more concerned with how the prophets said what they said and really unconcerned with the content right so it wasn't like oh, there's great injustice in our community. It was, how di- who do you think you are talking to me disrespectfully? Anyway, whatever. So this leader I, I really deeply, deeply admire, and I, and I try really hard, or I do um, open myself up to say when she speaks, like I really want to listen deeply and I really want to hear, and I don't want to just let myself off the hook and go like, oh, she's not talking about me. Um, and it was interesting. I was there for court support, and she we were just having a casual conversation and um, and it came up that I have never been arrested. And she was like, what? You've never been arrested? And I'm like, I have not been arrested. I have been at protests where that could have happened. It just hasn't happened. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I just, it has not happened. I'm not like dying to be arrested either. Let me be totally clear. Like I think sometimes faithful people the faithful place to be is in a jail cell, but that just has not happened to me yet. I'm open to it. I'm not seeking it out. And it was funny. She was joking, but not really joking. She was like, you haven't been arrested. Like what's wrong with you? Like you can't really be around with this. And I'm like, look, I've learned ironically from you (laughs) that being part of a liberation movement and an abolitionist movement is you do not say, Oh, someone in authority tells me I have to do this. So I have to do it no matter what, like you are free in a, I mean, this isn't her word, it's mine, but in a, in a community of shalom, you are free to give what you have to give and to play the role that you feel the Lord is calling you to play. And you don't look around to authority figures and say, well, I don't want to do this or I feel coerced or pressured, but I will because this is what I have to do in order to belong. So I'm like, no, I've not been arrested. I'm not saying I'll never be arrested. I get that you're shocked. I get that in your evaluation, anyone who's really seriously committed to these causes would have been arrested by now. I understand all of that and you might be right. But what I also know is I'm allowed to show up in freedom and it's possible that actually it's not my role um, to be arrested. And, And I might be not where I need to be in terms of standing up for justice, but the person that I seek that truth from is the Lord, not this leader, much as I deeply, deeply respect her and her, I think, God-given role to call me out. So it's really like to say like Han's way is good and beautiful and is obviously generative, like generative conflict is a gift and and yours is as well. Like you're a pastor and she's not. So it's just a, a different thing. Yeah, I was uh, driving in the car uh, yesterday. I was on the highway and um, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who is not a clergy person. And I was just not mindful of my speed. And I was going very fast. I was going well over the speed <laughs> limit, like well over. And then I passed a police officer and I looked in the rearview mirror and when I saw those blue lights, oh my, I, I mean, I, I think I stopped breathing for a moment. 
And so I told my friend, I was like, look, I'm about to get um, a ticket. I see the lights. Here they come. And she said, well, just tell the officer you're a pastor and mm-hmm. um, like you're, you're, you're talking to someone who's grieving. And this person was yeah. a loss in the family. And surely, and I'm thinking, no, yeah. my mindset is, no, I just need to survive mm-hmm. this encounter. Right. And so there, there are times when my, my wiring is just, it, it is, it's necessary for the world we live in. Now, aside, I did not get a ticket. Apparently someone else was going faster than me (laughs) (laughs) and that person was stopped. I should have gotten a ticket. I deserve to get a ticket. Uh, But uh, yeah, that's how that ended. Well, I mean, deserve to get a ticket. Yes. Deserve to be in like terror because of what could happen. Absolutely not. Yeah. Right. No. And I think that's really interesting. And that's what it means when we say we walk by faith and not by sight is that like in so many ways, what we want as humans is just to offload the really hard work of discerning what's far enough and what's too far. And we want to just say like, well, it's too scary. The stakes are too high that I'll get it wrong. So I'll just go to X authority authority figure and they'll say, do this and not that. And I'll comply. And then that, and then I'm off the hook. Like that relieves me of my responsibility and it doesn't. And it doesn't relieve us of our responsibility before the Lord to say like, no, I like, I am your shepherd, not, this person or that person and you need to take in what they say and then bring it to the Lord. And like, how can the Lord ever bring renewal and healing out of our communities for our communities? If we refuse to listen to anyone or to do anything that's, you know, beyond the norm. And that's why so many communities get so sick so quickly is because they're so self-referential that they can't. um, Yeah. And, and the way, um, you know, we operate in our house and outside of our house is that, What's helpful to me is that there there are times now when I think, oh, is this is is this a time to not go with my natural wiring? Mm-hmm. And ten years ago, it right. it was just by default. Now, um, because I'm married to this person that just has a different way that I've, I can, I can see the value in it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this this is good, right, and necessary and godly. There there are times when this is is supposed to happen. Right. Not instead of, but in addition to, right? And that is actually just, I mean, that's the image of the body of Christ, right? Like we're not all hands. We're not all feet. We don't say, I have no need of you. Like the point isn't to say, oh, now I need to be like Han. It's to say Han is incarnating a truth about what it means to be alive and free in Christ. And I can see and learn and be blessed and grow through her, but not into her, right? right like I right. remain me, yeah. but a fuller version of me because I'm in relationship with Absolutely. her. And that is true in, in marriage, hope, you know, hopefully. And in, in the church, you know, there should be people in the church with really different giftings and callings and wisdom and ways of expressing their faith. And that should not be threatening to any, of, to any of us, we ought to be able to see that. We ought to be able to perceive it. We ought to be able to recognize that, you know, this is not, I'm not called to become this person, but I am called to allow myself to be blessed and um, influenced. influenced by that person. Yeah. Yes. So. so what's astonishing you? Um, well, I told you um, that I I got a letter. Um, oh, and that yeah. is this just is good. <laughs> so sometimes I write, editorials for the local paper and a lo- it turns out that most of them are about either healthcare or um 
prison reform. Like I just often, I mean, I've just noticed this trajectory. And so um, then people read them. And so occasionally I get letters from folks um, who are incarcerated, like responding to um, what I've written. Normally, like, because I'm normally writing about the, um, just how we dehumanize those who are in prison and how, you know, perpetrating evil or injustice against them is not, it's not righteous. And that God has a special, I mean, Jesus begins in his first sermon says, you know, I've come to bring freedom to the captives and deliverance to the oppressed. I'm misquoting that. But, and so, you know, if our faith is not good news to those who are in prison, um, to those who are oppressed, to those who are in captivity, whatever that means, then, then we are, we are not walking in Christ. And I think so often we're so quick to like make those metaphors and go like, okay, but actual prison. But I mean, actual prison is one thing Jesus meant when he talked about those who are imprisoned. And if you didn't know it in Matthew 25, he said, I was in prison and you visited me. So like Christ is in prison. And literally we just got finished celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus and Christ was in prison. So like, we just need to understand the church is called to have a particular holy relationship with folks involved with the criminal justice system. Like I didn't make that up. Like that's just there anyway. So this prisoner, um, this man in prison wrote me a letter and he has written me before just to thank me, which is just so um, humbling for me. And he wrote me back and um, said, I want to, um, I need some spiritual counsel. And he said, I know, he, he wrote me in a letter, I guess he referenced it, a sort of part of his story. And I don't remember, like, hashtag, a lot of times people tell me things in, con- like, not confession, but in like pastoral counseling and I forget a lot. And I honestly really kind of believe that the Holy Spirit just kind of wipes my memory. I get Um, it. I get that. I like, I just think there's something really sacred about it because these are extraordinary stories that people tell me. And I just think that they're not really for me to remember. Well, it doesn't become the lens through which you see them. Yeah, I don't see them through that lens. And also, I just think that the Lord, like, you need to know that story so that you can, like, hopefully be a conduit of God's grace to them in that moment, but you don't need to remember it. And so I, I don't remember, I don't remember what he said, but he alluded to, I told you my story and I've, you know, made these, um, really I've done terrible things and I know that I'm forgiven in Jesus and I receive God's, you know, love and mercy and, um, and I'm thankful. And then he said, "I, I have some questions. Um, he said, I mean, his writing is so beautiful. Um, And his question is, how can I, who's committed something terrible, prepare myself to earn society's love and forgiveness? Mm. And then secondly, why do I struggle so much to find love and forgiveness and acceptance even from my own Christian family? And I was so deeply... um, like that that's so sacred those his his life and his story and his questions um and i think 
what I know is that for as loudly <laughs> as our country claims to be Christian um, and claims to you know, legislate for Christ and compel Christ upon people, when it comes to how we treat people who are in prison, people who acknowledge I have committed a terrible sin, the way that we treat those people reveals that we do not believe what we say we believe. Like we will shout and scream hallelujah about forgiveness of God all day long on Easter Sunday, new life, new life, new life. But when there's someone in prison who who says, I've committed a terrible act and I have received the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. And I, and I am so thankful for the new life that I have that I do not deserve. Like, where is my welcome into the body of Christ? And the body of Christ slams the door, both at large in our culture and people who are involved in local churches who, who don't have, you know, who I think have just been preached a false gospel that has taught them that the righteousness of Christ requires them to condemn um, and not to forgive. And, and whose view of the power of Jesus is that the power of Jesus gives me the authority to destroy and punish, not the authority to forgive. And that grace makes me and my sins acceptable before the Lord, but not you and yours. And so I, you know, I just was so, um, I, I do think the way a huge litmus test for the authenticity of a Christian community is what are, what is your connection to people who are in prison and not just unjustly in prison, but, but people who have done, um, horrible things. And if you, believe that there's no power on earth that can both forgive and heal and redeem them. If you don't believe that's possible, then you don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. That reminds me when I was in school and I don't know if teachers still do it this way, but when um, I was in school and teachers graded on a curve, it usually meant that everyone in the class failed a test. Right. And so the curve gave this amount of grace that raised everyone's grade. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of this grace-filled curve, some would then receive a passing grade, but others, their failure was so deep, their failure was so great Mm -hmm. that even after the grace, they were still in failure. And I think we un- that's how we see the cross. Yeah, I think how that's a we perfect see- metaphor. That is yeah. exactly how yeah. the American industrial yeah. Christian church preaches so grace. So you never cross the line of acceptance and belonging. Even after the grace, we still see you as a failure. And I think that's a perfect thing, too. It's like it's a test. Mm-hmm. And I do think a lot of people feel like, no, I, God will help me make myself acceptable. God will help me master my behavior and my desires and my spiritual health. God will help me, but God won't do it for me. I have to do it on my own. And that is the American myth, not the revelation of scripture, 
the revelation of scripture is you can't do it on your own and God will supernaturally through the living presence of the risen Christ born in you make you new creation. That is the straight up orthodox gospel. And a lot of, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. A lot of churches preach like Christian flavored self-help that right. has no supernatural or real spiritual component at all. It's just, it's just hard. It is on both sides of the culture war. It's have the right morals, the right values, mm-hmm. like stay in line. And so it can be stay in line, don't be gay, or stay in line, welcome all the trans people around. Like it doesn't matter. It's just right. a behavior-based it is, system. It's what Paul calls human righteousness. It is. And it's saying like, whatever your version of circumcision is, like there's a thing you must do in order for the gospel to work for you. Now, I'm not saying that our behavior doesn't change once we come alive in Christ, because it absolutely does. And you're not saying that there are no boundaries. There absolutely are. There absolutely are. And some of those boundaries, I think, are accurately perceived by both sides of the culture wars. Um, some of them. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always nervous about saying both sides in these days, and I'm also nervous about not saying it. But I mean, like life in Christ is nonpartisan um, and is not it, life in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is offensive to human righteousness. Yes. Period. Full stop. A, a friend of mine was telling me um, about Al Letson. Do you know him? No. He's an NPR journalist and content creator. He is a black man. He um, is an investigative reporter and has some podcasts. And, but he gained a lot of attention and notoriety. The son of a pastor, he was at some kind of protest and there was a counter protest and a white supremacist was about to get like crushed and killed. And he, Al Letson, the black man, threw himself over the body of the white supremacists to save his life, right? I don't know all, I don't remember the details correctly, but that is what happened, right? Now that is the righteousness of Christ, right? And that is a righteousness that will offend every, everyone on both sides Mm -hmm. of the conflict over human righteousness. And that is the level of being able to say, like knowing that the, knowing that the person with whom I am corresponding with is a child of God and precious beyond calculation in the eyes of the master and knowing that he caused the death of another child of God who's, you know, and the loss of that is incalculable and knowing that as an American citizen, people acting on my behalf have caused the death of countless humans around the globe, most recently in Iraq and Afghanistan, like we are all blood soaked. And that's what it means when we talk about, you know, in when we rehearse the passion story, and at some point, you know, you have to have to join in your voice with the crowd saying crucify him, like we believe in crucifixion, in human wisdom, we believe that some things are so evil, they just have to be destroyed. And God does not believe that. And that offends us. Yeah, one of the things that's been helpful for me in terms of theology, understanding the Bible, is that at one time I had a very limited understanding of sin. That sin was simply about individual moral actions. And when you read the Apostle Paul, 
yes, it is that. And right. something bigger is happening. Mm-hmm. Sin is a force. Sin is this thing that is holding the world captive. Yep. It is active. It is, it is, um, it is destroying all all humanity and all creation. And so when we see the complexity of 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 violence and hatred and conflict in the world, well at 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 some level we need to pull back as human beings and not point the finger at other human beings though there is very real guilt. Right. We uh, should also see this force at work that is against all of right. us. And so Paul is saying, my enemy is not flesh and blood, but the yes. powers of principalities. I remember um, a, the pastoral care professor in seminary, Carrie Doring, saying to me, when I was a second year seminarian, so like I, I was a two years into a degree in theology and sitting in her office and she was saying to me, well, you know, sin is a web. Like that same concept, like that's how she said it, like sin is a web and we are all caught in it. And I remember I just could not conceive of what she meant. Like I just couldn't conceptualize sin as anything other than, no, it's a bad choice an individual makes and there's a spectrum and... I mean, just what you're saying, like on the curve, right? And I, you know, at the time was, you know, living out a really difficult situation and really like experiencing some real um it's just some real pain and suffering because of some sinful choices that some people had made and she was both affirming me in saying like that is real like you you <laughs> that is real and also even the people who are to borrow biblical language like perpetrating these sins against you you need to have a wider vision, being able to understand that you and they are caught up in the web of sin. And I just remember at the time being like, no, I'm right and they're wrong. Right. Like what, right. like that, like, what? <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this, no, what? but that, that's how we see, we that's have how we this see it, right? very strong duality. Yeah. And, and if you won't say I'm right and they're wrong, then it feels like you're saying that what's happening to me is okay. And right. so being able to both say in this particular instance, there was a righteous and an unrighteous, cho- like there was an unrighteous choice that was made and it had real consequences and you are suffering them. And that is true. And also there's a wider context that is equally true. And that's just a hard thing for us to grasp. And it's easier to build a community around people when you say it's simple, there's right and wrong, you're right, they're wrong. Your job is not to be right because you already are. Your job is to just keep doing you, keep doing whatever looks good in your own eyes. Don't do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. And all righteousness means is knowing that those people are not righteous and they're a danger and they're a threat. And your job is to like, from a safe distance, attack them and separate yourself from them. That is, you know, the dominant message of marketplace Christianity. And it has just got nothing to do with the lived incarnation of Jesus, who was a reconciler and with a redeemer kingdom. and a peacemaker. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what's astonishing me. And we are so close to being out of time. Um, shall we just try to say really quickly what uh, we're thinking about? Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, well, Let's see. Oh, well, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast how I locked my keys in my car mm-hmm. this morning, and yep. um, I was going into the store anyway, which is why I stopped there. And 
just so mindful that I would be waiting outside while um, waiting for AAA to arrive to let me in my car. And I just, I, I was very self-conscious, right? So I felt the need to say to the cashier, I've talked with many times because I shop in that store mm -hmm. often. Hey, my car stopped. I'm going to be hanging out by the door waiting mm -hmm. for AAA. Um, and still yet I felt, I felt a, a real negative energy. I don't really like using that word, but I'll use it. A negative energy as people came mm -hmm. and went from the store um, and I'm like, okay, so why, why, why am I feeling so anxious? It's like, oh yes. What I'm thinking about this week is that six year, 16 year old boy oh, in gosh. Kansas city, uh, Ralph, Ralph Yarrow. Yeah. Who he was going to pick up his younger siblings at a house. I think it was like one fourteen, um, something street. And he ended up at one fourteen. Something, something terrace. Added, yeah, or it was at, almost right? the exact same. Yes. Yeah. It's just the street over. And so he rang the doorbell. The homeowner threw the glass, shot him in the head. He fell to the ground. The homeowner shot him again, I believe, in the arm or, or the shoulder. He had enough life to get up and go to another house to ask for help. They refused him. He went to another house. They refused him help. He went to a <laughs> third house, and they refused him help. Um, finally, help did arrive. He is, praise the Lord, recovering in a hospital. Um, I cannot imagine the amount of trauma um, that he and his family are feeling at the moment but I'm I'm I, I was there outside waiting for AAA mindful that that is the environment as an African-American man waiting outside the store wondering how people were perceiving me was I a threat to them simply because I'm waiting like I'm right in front of my car which is <laughs> right at the front door of this um, store so I'm just waiting for AAA to come and let me in my car um, how they were perceiving me. And I felt my own anxiety yeah. rise. And that, that's a very real thing. And people uh, should know that um, many of us have that kind of anxiety daily. And it's very real. And there is a reason for it. It's not... No, it's not uh, paranoia. Yeah, we, we live in a time now. It, it's not simply people will uh, simply say something to you or look at you in a funny way. There, there are now bullets involved. And, you know, even now, um, just within the past day or so, uh, there is a, a child and her father shot here in North Carolina. This time it was a, a white child, but her basketball went into a neighbor's yard. No, I know. Right? I mean, it is not paranoia when we have, you know, these huge gun shows with 11 acres of semi-automatic weapons we have our legislators moving to relax the very few gun laws that exist so now you can open carry concealed carry without a permit you can get a military assault weapon and we have laws that say the standard is if i feel threatened if i feel threatened. if i feel afraid i'm allowed to offend myself with defend myself with deadly force and a person in a black body is an inherent threat or, you know, like the girl, the cheerleader in Texas who 
opened the wrong car door and got shot. I mean, actually, she didn't even get shot. She got into another car and the bullets into that car and shot her friend. And she did get shot, I think, but not seriously. And so I think that's what's so terrifying is just this idea that you can't make a mistake. Like, not only can you not protest, can you not do direct action? Can you not practice civil disobedience? But you cannot make a mistake because someone can shoot you and say, you knocked on my door, you stepped in my yard, you drove up my driveway that you thought was a street and it was instead a private drive. Like if you make a mistake, you die because we live in a country that worships violence and believes that the only thing that makes peace makes me safe is to be able to kill other people that's just that's our ideology and and there's a conversation happening right now about ai artificial intelligence and will that somehow further distort or even deny a certain level of humanity in our society and here we have this gun issue that is just right in our faces and we i say we um, we we see it um but we are not yet willing um, as a society to do something. Well, and about I think it. it is just this idea that like we do still believe in the metaphor of like sin is, you know, somebody does a wrong action and then they deserve to bear the consequences. And, and, you know, there's a certain amount of grace if you grade on the curve, but if you don't, if that doesn't make a difference for you, then you get what you deserve. And I think, you know, this idea that like people just, um, <laughs> like right now in North Carolina, they're actually working on legislation to forbid. I, I don't even understand how this is possible, and I haven't looked into it. I've just seen headlines about it, so maybe it's a distortion of reality. But have you heard that they're trying to pass legislation about banning tr- participation trophies for young people? I have not heard that. I mean, and I just think it's so interesting, relatedly, this idea like you only get a trophy if, if you, you deserve win. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, the thing that I need to like put a stop to is not you know, rampant guns, but is the idea that some people might be being affirmed for what they didn't, you know, they didn't, you should know that you, if you lost, you're a loser and that's all you are and you don't, you know, who knew it was participation trophies. That's that's the problem. It's not guns. Because guns don't kill people. Participation (laughs) trophies kill people. Apparently. Because that's when people don't understand that there's a right and a wrong. And when they don't understand there's a right and a wrong, then they do the wrong thing and then they get themselves shot and that's on them. And the soccer coach who gave them a participation trophy when they were 14. (laughs) So that's it. We're out of time. You got to go pick up your kid. So once again, we will not get to talk about the thing that I want to talk about. And you know, on this podcast, a theme is, oh, is you it the just thing? talk and talk and talk and talk, and there's just no room for me to talk at all. I'm sorry. I, I talk know. so much. Just, and you do. Next week, do. I will leave room for will you, you to okay. say. Oh, will you? you I will, will, will. Are you saying that next week I, you'll allow me to speak? I will use Everyone, my, next, my patriarchy next power. Next week, Yolanda you is going to allow <laughs> the ladies. This one's for the ladies. We'll warn you, so any men, you can just end the podcast. Because I'll say something for the ladies, which is actually ironic given what I want to talk about, because that's exactly it. Oh, yeah. That's going to be really good. Little, um, A little teaser. Well, thank you for listening to us this week. Um, If you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, it's D-E-R-I-T-A, pres.org. No, it's not. It's a liar. It's not. It's Go to their website, which is (laughs) D-E-R-I-T-A. 
I don't have time to do this. Deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. Deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. That's sites with an S. That's a objectively bad email address. Can it, I just, listen, in my defense, just, <laughs> this is a problem. Yes. If you want to find out more about what God's doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to um, <laughs> thegrovecharlotte.org. Yes. And um, you can check out Dorida's YouTube page. You can check out The Grove's YouTube Ooh. page. You can check out The Grove's podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, look for the tree with headphones on it. And you can check out Dorida's podcast on the Podbean website. You can worship at Dorida Press at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can worship at The Grove at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Ooh. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.